Let us pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for this great prayer of Jesus. We pray, Lord, that you would now open our hearts and our minds, our eyes to see you, our ears to hear you, that we might know Jesus this day. And it is in his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. The hour has come, Jesus prays. The hour has come. John's Gospel introduces the idea of Jesus' hour in chapter 2. When Jesus tells his dear mother Mary that his hour has not yet come. And it is a refrain that he will say multiple times in this gospel. The time is not yet. His hour has not yet come. And now in this prayer to his father, the time has changed. The hour, the moment has come. It is the moment where Jesus will be revealed for who he truly is to all who have eyes to see it. The hour has come when Jesus' mighty work will cause a Gentile soldier to look upon him and say, truly this was the Son of God. For when Jesus refers to his hour, he is referring to his cross. As we enter into this Holy Week, we will again see that the path to the cross is not an easy one. Betrayal, abandonment, trial, beating, and execution await Jesus. All for crimes he did not commit, but for which he was willing to take the punishment. Knowing his hour has come, Jesus turns to prayer. And we see in these final hours... His concern was for his father's glory and for the care of his people. What a wonderful way to summarize the life and work of Jesus. That he lived and died and rose again for the glory of God and for the care of his people. He truly lived out the law perfectly, loving God and loving his neighbor even to death. And this prayer and his cross show us this. John tells us that having finished teaching his disciples, Jesus lifts his eyes to heaven and he prays, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. In these moments before he heads to the cross, Jesus' primary concern is that he and the Father would be glorified. And we know that what he has in mind here is his work on the cross. It is the place where the Father and Son would truly be glorified in his death and resurrection. Now we might wonder how it is that an execution could glorify the Father. It is because through this act, the Father and the Son's gracious love is revealed. Now, in one sense, to glorify God is to see him as being worthy of all praise and honor and worship. And that is true. That is very, very true. 
But while that is true in John's gospel, to glorify God has even more to it than that, as great as that is. New Testament scholar Rod Whitaker points out for us that throughout the gospel, Jesus has revealed the Father's glory by manifesting his characteristic gracious love. In the death of the Son, the same love is revealed most profoundly, for God is love. And love is laying down one's life. Thus, in his death, Jesus will reveal his own character and his Father's character to be gracious love. The cross is the ultimate act of gracious love. It is the ultimate act of self-giving. And so it is the cross that most clearly reveals who God is to us. It reveals his character. Now there are some who are deeply offended by the cross. Scripture tells us there would be, and so there is. They claim that God could never send his son to it. And that to force Jesus to die upon the cross to pay the penalty for sin is an injustice on the level of divine child abuse. My dear friends, that argument misses the point entirely. Jesus was not forced to the cross. He went willingly. No one takes my life from me, Jesus says in John 10, but I lay it down of my own accord. The glory of the Father and the Son is revealed in the death of the Son because it shows beyond a shadow of a doubt that the nature of God is love. For rather than leaving us to bear the weight and the eternal punishment that our sin demands, God acted out of his love to redeem and to forgive. To deny the purpose of the cross, to minimize the work of Jesus upon it, or to be ashamed of it at all, is to deny that God is love. You cannot claim that you believe God is love and ignore the cross. It is to deny that out of the gracious love of God, Christ went to the cross to purchase a people for our Father, to share in the eternal life that only He can give. Jesus prays to the Father, saying this, You, meaning God, have given Him, giving Jesus, authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is not something that the Father had to give. And it is not something that we compelled him to grant us. But by his very nature, he loved us enough to grant us eternal life in him. And it happens through faith in Christ. Knowing the Father and the Son, Jesus prays. Not as some intellectual assent, but as genuine belief. It is what brings glory to the Father. And it is what eternal life is all about. Glorifying the Father and the Son. The gift of the Father made possible by the work 
of the Son. That is what Jesus prays for us. And that is how God is glorified. It is the heart of Christ to glorify His Father. It is also His heart to care for His people. He prays that His people would be protected that they would be sanctified and ultimately find themselves with him. In the portion of John 17 that we did not read this morning, Jesus makes it clear that he has protected his people from the world, that those who believe in Jesus are no longer of this world but live for a different kingdom. This is made explicit in verse 14. He says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. It is much the same as Paul teaches us, that through faith in Christ, the Christian is transferred from the kingdom of darkness, or what Jesus calls the world, into the kingdom of light, meaning the kingdom of God. And so the Christian's ultimate allegiance lies with God's kingdoms, God's kingdom and its values. The value of gracious, self-sacrificing love. The value of honoring and glorifying God with all that we are. These are not the values of the cultures that we are surrounded with. Be it the one we currently live in or the ones that we see around the world. This is not a critique simply of the West. It is a critique of all fallen culture. The result of this is that the Christian will often feel a little uncomfortable with the world around them. That if you are in Christ Jesus, you are not of this world, and so you live for a different kingdom, and there should be no time at all when you are in complete agreement or complete comfort with the world around you. Christians should be acutely aware that things are not as they should be. Because we live for different things, as Christ did, and the world hates him for it. Now, in the face of this reality, we can face two temptations. The first is to rail against the world. To point our finger and say, here are all the things that are wrong with you. And the list of Christians acting this way is so long, I could keep us here all the way through Easter Sunday just reading names. And some of my less holy moments would certainly be on that list. The other temptation is to retreat from the world. Something we see in denominations that isolate themselves from the outside world, at times literally moving out of wider society and forming their own little enclave. But after Jesus acknowledges the world's hatred towards himself and his disciples, this is what he prays. Verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. What a thing to pray. (laughs) If the world hates the followers of Jesus just as they hated Jesus, why would he pray that we not be taken out of this world? It's in perfect alignment with who Jesus is. 
Jesus knows what his followers can expect. He knows that following him means being at odds with the cultures we find ourselves in, and yet he doesn't want us to flee from our culture. He prays that the Father would protect his people from the evil one, from the temptation to embrace darkness over the light, to leave Jesus behind, to be conformed to the world and not be conformed to Christ. And he prays for protection from the worst of what the world could do. But he never prays for us to be removed. Why? Because the only way for darkness to be driven out is for light to remain. Darkness cannot be overcome by darkness. Only light. Only the light of Jesus Christ. The light that shines in the darkness that the darkness cannot overcome. Only that can cause the dark to flee. And that light is his church. The church of Jesus Christ is to remain in the world, to bear witness to the Son, to glorify the Father and the Son, and to be the light that casts out the darkness that we live amongst. It is in complete alignment with the nature of God for Jesus to pray this. Because as we have said, and as the cross shows us, the nature of God is gracious love. And it takes gracious love to stay in the world as the light of God, rather than leaving the world to rot in darkness. It is gracious love that sent Christ to us. It is gracious love that led Christ to the cross. And so it is gracious love that must empower and motivate his church to be light in the world. The way of Christ is not to beat our chests and point the finger, nor is it to retreat into our enclaves and echo chambers. That might seem like the wisest course of action sometimes. I get it. I am tempted by both of these multiple times a day, it feels like. But our bluster and our disengagement are actually motivated by fear and self-preservation, not the self-giving love that Jesus calls us to embody, that he calls us to have so that he might be revealed to others. Now, at this point, we might say, amen, I'm in, I'm going to go be the light of the world, I'm going to go live like Jesus, I'm going to do the things he told me to do, I'm going to say the things he wants me to say, I'm going to strap on my what would Jesus do bracelet, off I go. I actually had a chain when I was younger, not a, not a bracelet. Thing is, it's always a thing. If we're going to live as the light in the world, we can't just charge off on our own. We can't just work out of our own strength and power. We need to be sanctified. It's what Jesus prays for us. I like how Michael Horton puts it. He says, the gospel is not what, is not what would Jesus do, now go do it. The gospel is, what has Jesus done, now go believe it. You see, if we're going to live as Christ's people in the world, we need him to shape and mold us. 
We need him to sanctify us, which means to be set apart for him, to be holy as God is holy. That's not something we are going to do wearing our WWJD. It's not something we're going to do running off on our own. And so Jesus prays, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Now we know from earlier in the farewell discourse that Jesus himself is the truth. And we know from earlier in John's gospel that Jesus himself is the word. And so Jesus is praying here that we might be brought in line with him to be made holy as he is holy. And that is only something that happens as we are steeped in the truth of God, as we are so filled by the Holy Spirit that our our thoughts, our words, even our instincts are made holy. Now these first disciples had Jesus physically with them, and so they could see firsthand what this looked like. They could be steeped in the truth of Jesus by simply being with him. Now we don't have Jesus physically with us, Anymore, But we have the Holy Spirit. And he it is who sanctifies us in the truth of Jesus. Through his divine revelation in Holy Scripture. That is how we the people of God and all people learn of Jesus today. That is how we are molded and shaped by him. Because we cannot know the truth unless we read of Jesus in the Bible. Unless our eyes are opened by the Holy Spirit. But being immersed in the scriptures, Christians by the power of the Holy Spirit can learn how to think and love and live theologically. By the way, that's why we worship the way we do as Anglicans. That's why we have this liturgy that is almost entirely scripture. So that we can be molded in our worship through God's very word. That we can worship him with the words that he has first given us. It shapes us. What does it mean? Or what do I mean by saying that we can learn how to think and love theologically? Well, it means as Paul states, having the mind of Christ. Having the ability to look at people or situations and not think in worldly terms, but in ways shaped by the values of the kingdom. To look at things and think not about what's best for me in this moment, but what is best for all involved. To ask how it is that I can serve this person today. To ask that how even when I disagree with this person, I can still love and honor and respect them. You see, if we're going to be made holy, if we're going to be sanctified in the truth of God, that means that all aspects of our lives are to be given over to him. Jesus teaches us that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength, or we could say our body. There's not a single part of the Christian that doesn't belong to Christ. And so that means looking at life and thinking about how the grace and work of Christ changes this moment. How it changes this action or my thoughts or my heart. But it will not happen unless we are resting in the truth of God. And that means examining the scriptures. Seeking Christ as he has revealed himself in his world. 
seeking him in his word so that we might be people of his word and live according to his holy will. We don't just sit on this truth we've been given. Jesus makes that clear. As you sent me into the world, Jesus prays, so I have sent them into the world. Empowered by Christ, he sends us as a sanctified people. Not to retreat from the world, not to yell and scream at the world, but to engage the world out of his gracious love. You see how this all works together now? You see how this prayer flows together so perfectly? Shouldn't be surprised Jesus is the one praying it after all. Because of, what the Father, or because of what Christ has accomplished on the cross, the Father and the Son are glorified and eternal life is available to us. And so he protects us and sends his people, changed by his love and set apart to be his own, into the world so that those who are lost in darkness, just as we all once were, can be brought into his life. That is the prayer of Christ. And it all starts with glorifying God. It all starts with the cross. And to be sure, there are times when we will not live this out perfectly. (laughs) Make no mistake. Thanks be to God, he knows that. He knows that full well. It's part of why Jesus says in verse 26 that he will continue to make the glory of the Father known to us. So that the love the Father and the Son have for one another might be in us and we in Him. What a gift. And He does it, He says, so that the world might know that Christ loves Him. Throughout this prayer, Jesus makes it clear that He does not send us out to condemn the world, but to show the world Christ's love even as it rejects him. That it is not God's will to desire the death of a sinner, but that all that might turn and be saved, that is gracious love. Though the world constantly turns from him and hates him and his people, Jesus still prays that one day the world would believe in him. Father, I desire, Jesus prays, that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory. That is what Christ wants for us. That is what Christ sends us out into the world to proclaim. All that was set before him was about winning a lost people back into the perfect love of the Father and the Son. It's why he died for us. It's why he lives and intercedes for us. It's why he sanctifies us to bear witness in the world. So that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit might be honored and loved and glorified for all eternity. As we walk with Christ this Holy Week, from the joy of his triumphal entry through his humility and grace in giving us Holy Communion, to the agony of Gethsemane and the pain of the cross, and ultimately his glorious resurrection, 
May each of us see in every part of that the unending gracious love of Jesus Christ. And may he this Holy Week and forevermore open the eyes of the blind that we might evermore praise and glorify our Father in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Jesus would pray this amazing, perfect prayer that we might see his love for us, we might see his perfect holiness and his grace and his love. And so, Father, I pray that this Holy Week you would continue to reveal that to us, that you would show us more deeply the love that you have for us. And we pray, Father, that you would so mold your church that this love that you have for the world might shine forth. And even this Holy Week, countless people would come to know and love Jesus as their Savior. In his name we pray. Amen.